LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Thomas Sheridan, who joins us to discuss the film Panda's Fen and related themes and topics. In 1974, the BBC broadcast the film Panda's Fen, leaving audiences mystified and spellbound. Make no mistake, we had a major work of television last night, the Times declared the next morning. Written by playwright and classicist David Rudkin and directed by Alan Clark, Panda's Fen follows Stephen, an 18-year-old boy whose identity, sexuality and suffocating nationalism unravels through a series of strange visions. Set in the village of Pinvin, against the backdrop of the Malvern Hills, the film is an evocation of conflicting forces within England, past and present, and most of all, its mystical, ancient pagan past. After its original broadcast, the film vanished into unseen mythic status, with only a single rebroadcast in 1990 sustaining its cult following. With a DVD release in 2016, Panda's Fen has now become totemic for those interested in England's deep history, folklore and landscape. Hello and welcome Thomas, thank you so much for joining us again today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Always a pleasure Greg, delighted to be back. Now, what we're doing today is actually at your suggestion, um, and I can't remember, I think I bought the DVD of, finally bought the DVD of Pendas Fen, which is what we're going to be talking about, that and, and related matters. Um, and I think I must have posted something about it online and then you suggested we do this because I know that a lot of the themes in it are of great interest to both of us. But when I went back and investigated, I mean, I, I was aware of this this film, it was made for TV, but I was thinking, well, how did I miss this this one out? And then when I got a couple of books on hauntological matters, I realized how much TV and film I'd missed. You think you've got a pretty good grounding in this stuff and then something like that slips under the radar. Worth mentioning, though, that um, for years and years and years, uh, Pandas Fen was, in many ways, it's the definition of a hauntological piece, but in particular it was because you couldn't get it. It wasn't even broadcast the time it was made. So it didn't show up on, t- on YouTube until about 2008. And prior to that, I'd just seen a trailer for it. You know, So it had that air of mystery about it. I don't know when you first managed to check it out. I saw her, I only heard about it in about 2000, yeah, 2016. I read the review of, of the DVD had been released with, you know, remastered HD DVD, and which I bought subsequently, you know, a little while later. But they were praising this thing, saying it was one of the greatest, you know, works of television ever made, ever produced, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really go deeply into it, but it, it definitely got my interest. And I found that it was an appalling version on YouTube with lots missing and loads of tracking problems. It was obviously someone had a very, someone had found it somewhere and 
put it on a very bad VHS tape, but it was good enough to say this was, this is like one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my life. And then when I got the DVD a little later, I now believe that Panda's Fan is probably the greatest, the greatest piece of television ever produced. And I, and I say that like without hyperbole, I really do believe that it's up there, if not the best. Well, as I mentioned, there were some controversy about it after it was made. Partly, I think even the people involved in it didn't really know what they were making, which were kind of like channeling something. But uh, it wasn't broadcast. It was broadcast sometime after it was made, you know, it was taken off the schedule. And it didn't wasn't shown again on TV until 1990. So I think what you were probably looking at, that really ropey version, was somebody's VHS tape from that time. I think that's true, yeah. Now, Alan Clark directed this movie and... I was when I was reading up, reminding myself about his uh, career. I was reminded he's made several films that I rate very highly. Uh, I know I mentioned this to you yesterday. There's uh, <clears throat> two um, scum, which is about Borstals, uh, which is basically prisons in this country for uh, for youth, as it were. But you know, serious offenders. They, they are rough places. Uh, Made in Britain was his film about skinhead stroke racist culture, not tying those two things together at all. But, you know, obviously in some at the, in the 1970s, there was that subculture and uh, the firm, which is a sort of a gangland film, with outstanding performance by Gary Oldman and also Rita, Sue and Bob, too. I don't know if you've seen that one, but that's great fun. It's basically just about the tedium of, of suburbia and what people do to get themselves through it. All of them, all I've seen was scum which is uh, brilliant and was actually made into a Hollywood movie with Sean Penn called Bad Boys, which is also excellent. Oh, I didn't know that. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, so Pendus Fan was originally part of a series, Play for Today, on the BBC. And uh, Scum was actually also made as part of Play for Today. But along with uh, one called Brimstone and Treacle, which was later made into a movie with Sting in it, both Pendus Fan and Sam Brimstone and Treacle were pulled from the schedule originally. And... Um, but really, it's something that's I would say in the early 21st centuries found its place. And I don't know about you, but when I watched it again, only just for a couple of weeks ago for the first time ever, I didn't find it that difficult to follow or to understand. There was a lot. There were some strange things happening, which I, I don't know where they fit into the story. But I, I was expecting it to be less comprehensible than actually it was. When it first came out, Alan Clark was saying that. The BBC literally were throwing money at anyone who wanted to make anything different. And there was a very open-minded agenda at the BBC in terms of the the drama department, and particularly through Play for the Day, that if you had an idea and it was basically radical, you know, quote-unquote, you got... You got you got the money to make these things. And he said they were surprisingly, you know, free and easy with the money. But they didn't always broadcast them. So it was almost a case of maybe perhaps they paid for them, commissioned them, and if it didn't get broadcast then, well down the road they could they could broadcast it later or perhaps release it through their eventually through videotapes or whatever when that format came out through their commercial department. But that's that's why it came out. Now you're right about it not being particular well, let's compare it to the other play for the days. I can remember them, those kitchen sink dramas, as they called them. They often tended to be very Ken Loachy, very cliched, to do with class warfare, often from a very socialist point of view. The 
the the working class and their you know the Jeffrey Osborne don't look in back in anger kind of theme nearly in every single one of them. But Pendus Femme was completely different. It was completely off the wall compared to what was you know the standard play for today fair. And I think that was the main reason why I don't think it flew. Although you said it's easy to follow, and it is, but it, it dealt with themes, you know, coming from, you know, coming from the world that you and I inhabit. We watch alternative documentaries. We watch, you know, we read books that are kind of not mainstream. And it's two thousand, and you know, it's it's past the two thousands now, and the internet has made a lot of information accessible. But this would have been literally a smorgasbord of occultism and esoteric information hitting the mainstream viewer when it came out in 74 and i think on that level it was probably a bit too out there and a bit too cerebral in terms of the times mainstream viewer to broadcast that's what i think yeah i mean it was the it was the prog rock era wasn't it i suppose and the the moving into the the punk era and while there was certainly you could see it reflected in other cultural artifacts and trends in the 70s while there was a sort of expanding consciousness on on one level um the 70s was also and this was reflected actually in parts of america as well particularly new york wasn't it? it ended up being a very depressing decade despite all the great things that came out of it i mean most of my favorite movies are made in the 70s actually and that says something but yeah perhaps people even though I find those kitchen sink dramas you refer to, the Ken Loach stuff was like really disempowering. It almost seems like people, and this is why people still watch soap operas today, isn't it? They, they almost want to feel better about their lives by looking at how much shittier someone else's life is, even if it's fiction. Um, conversely, Candace Fenn is very empowering in the other direction. Mm. It actually deals with spiritual transformation outside the domain of, you know, the prevailing Christian orthodoxy of the West. Yeah, very much so. And the story of the boy, um, again, if people are planning on watching this, they should probably leave listening to this talk until after they've seen it. He basically, the the young lad who's the protagonist, uh, starts out as super conservative, mainstream, mainline, you know, preppy, vicar's son. You know, everything about him just, apart from his kind of, nascent homosexuality everything seems to just fit as far as he's going where he's going in society and through this relatively short film you see him beginning to question values and he he actually thought the values handed to him by society um were his but he begins to realize they're they're, they're not Stephen was a parson's son not a vicar as he says in the film and that shows how like uptight he was he was very anal retentive and very pedantic but at the same time too even at the very beginning when he's listening to Elgar and he's looking over the countryside, there's a he had this deep spiritual resonance to him and afterwards he's thinking about about the Elgar's music and from a viewpoint of a pre, you know, an English Presbyterian in that part of England, which actually is a, is another character in the film, is that part of England, that area between Birmingham and Wales. And um so you see the kind of the, the roots of something deeper there. and But he confuses animism with patriotism and Christianity. And I think that's his main problem. Yeah, oh, there's, he's a very intense young man. And that 
that early scene that you mentioned where his, his mother interrupts him listening to his album, she, you can tell that you can see there's tension there. I mean, it's, you might say it's not uncommon for teenagers, but this is guy is an intense in a different way. And so I think that that, that was always within him. That's really who he is. But again, he was adhering to these values and what was expected of him. And actually, in, in superficially embraced it. So the film is like some kind of him having some kind of psychic or psychotic break. But ultimately ends up, I think it's, you know, a very positive message for him. And you can see how, you can see the potential for his future of like how, how different his life is going to be as a result of this episode and how he has a chance to be himself and be fulfilled in, in ways that even down to his sexuality that he just couldn't in that button down disciplinarian environment that he was part of in the mainstream establishment all the way. But even though he was this like snobby little preppy public school boy, I still found him, even when I first saw the film, even in the early parts of the story when he's, you know, he's tormented and confused confused by by playing with the convention or the, the orthodoxy of the, the time, there's something likable about him. I, I don't know whether it's because he has this look in his face that it does, he, he's not He's not, he's not a little shit. Put it that way. He's not. A, he's his attitude problem is caused by the fact he has no friends. Is probably academically gifted in the in the the true sense rather than the you know rather than the educational sense. He's also a musician. He obviously has a great deep affinity for music. So he's he's not unlikable. He, he the young actor who played him and the character. It's, it's class. He's one of those kind of people you come across in your life that you feel like they're pushing you away, but you know there's sort of like a good soul in there, and it just has to be kind of watered and brought out. In his case, it's two things. He's 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 watered and fertilized by his his the his remarkable father, who I think is like that some of the the father's dialogues, the Parsons' dialogues in the film are some of the most spectacular pieces of you know, dialogue ever put into any kind of work of, you know, broadcast art. Uh, and also the, the journalist that he, he, he befriends, the, the sort of left-wing radical Trotsky journalist, playwright, sorry, playwright he, he, he comes, becomes friends with. And that's, that's what he is. He's a, he's, 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 it's like what James Joyce said that about, like, he was the conscience of his race unborn. And it, he was like the conscience of his repressed self unborn. But it wasn't out of malice or it wasn't pathological. He he was complicated, but not... And that's what that's what keeps you watching the film and, and not hating him. Yeah, because certainly there's a potential there. If you describe the character, you could see some people who haven't maybe seen the film would just think, oh, Matt, he does sound like a little shit. But that's not the case. And you're right, and you're kept... Um, I found the thing increasingly gripping as it went on, actually. And when it's when it ended, what felt to me suddenly, I, I actually said out loud, I was sat here on my own, I said, oh, that can't be it. Is that it? Not because I was disappointed with the ending, but I was just disappointed it was over. You know, I was just, I, I was wondering where it was going to go next, and then it stopped. Because the that it, it he walked off into the, well, we don't tell people, but the, we all know what happens at the end when he, he calls out to a god, but not the not the god of the Bible, and has a religious experience, 
and well, not a god to an ancient, an ancient pagan king, but yeah, that was it. He was he was well, he was actually cured before that. He resolved so many other things, like the fact that, and if you haven't seen the film, you really need to switch off the video right now because we're going to be. There's no way Greg and I can get through this without having lots of spoilers. But the he had already solved the issues of is is real parental history. And his fact that he wasn't English, I think the parents were Irish, actually, and Catholic. And uh, uh, he he had sorted that stuff out, even when he went to see the playwright's wife and discussed with her about adopting children and saying she'd, they'd make a wonderful parents because they're interesting people. He already got that out of him. It was the final thing at the end was when he has that kind of epiphany, but it's quite violent and, and, you know, disturbing, that when he has that epiphany, it's it's done. The, the door is closed. It's it's like, uh, it's, I see the end of the movie as like when a relationship ends, there's no further drama. The person walks, the, closes the door behind them and walks away, and the two other people go on with their lives. Uh, that's how I see the end of the film. Yeah, well, it's, it's Panda uh, from the, you know, the uh, titular panda who appears at the end of the movie, <clears throat> the last pagan king of England. Uh, he was around in the seventh century, and I think that's probably for me that was kind of like a high point, and that's maybe why I was kind of a bit crestfallen when the film just stopped because I kind of figured he was going to be in it more. But yeah, some of the dialogue is just outstanding. You mentioned the uh, the 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 boy's father, um, the parson, but also the that Trotskyist playwright that you mentioned. I mean, when I was listening to him speak, it was like it was like poetry. You know, it didn't rhyme, but it was like some kind of Shakespearean speech, and it was just how he expressed himself. It was almost it was almost like he was reading lines, if you see what I mean. And as an actor, he was, but you know, as the character, it was just so eloquent and so not the person you thought he was going to be when we're at that town hall meeting and he's arguing with the you know with the probably the Tories. Well, that's the scene, the town hall meeting that like takes you watching this film. And this, whatever it is, a play, and transforms you into it. it it's like the, that that scene in that when I first saw that scene in the town hall meeting, where he's saying things like, and it's 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 incredible considering the world we live in today. He talks about the countries ruled by incredulous psychopaths. Has anyone ever used the word psychopath to describe politicians back in the seventies? And yet here it is blatantly used on this this film he talks about these he used the term hideous angels of te technocratic debt regarding a secret underground base this is where the kind of ontology quater massey there's a it's got this sort of like salute to kind of quater massism in the film with this underground base that you don't that's not really heavily gone into in the actual story but nevertheless it's an important part of it because he talks about later on how about military always seemed to build with the father when he becomes the parson how the military always seemed to build these hideous places like uh, Los Alamos and Pendus Fen, these hideous places of debt on sacred pagan ground, whether it be Native American or whatever. And it's you like you said, it's just you you, you want to know this guy in real life. You know, it's like I'm sitting there and say, I wish he wasn't an actor. 
I wish you lived down the road from me and we could be mates. You know that kind of a thing? Mm, yeah, the phrase he uses regarding that bunker is um, haunted sites, which I thought was an interesting choice of words as well, because that doesn't necessarily, in that context, I don't see that as negative. I just mean it in terms of like a lingering presence, you know? And there's a great bit of dialogue that he does with the playwright when he's, what is it that lies beneath? You know, he's at, he's giving the impression that really, a bit like some of the, the Christian church builders, you know, the original ones building on pagan sites, that, that these these military and boffins and these technocrats and these practicers of scientism are really not, you know, need to be very careful about what they're messing with. That's the impression I got. And yeah. also the the impression of all of this is a transitionary thing. You know, that, that the past is the future. You know, you, do you guys, uh, you know, the technocrats, the people we're talking about, you know, you think you've arrived at, you know, to quote Francis Fukuyama's ridiculous book, The End of History. You know, you think it's all, it isn't over, you know, and the, the future can be just as mythical and magical as the past. Yeah, you're, you're just here for a little while. Yeah, and also the underground is also the a subtext for Stephen's own repressions, his own hypocrisies. There's a scene prior to that where he's in school and he's it's like a debate in the class and he's complaining about a BBC or TV documentary about the, who, the real Jesus Christ. And he, he's, uh, this, he follows, he starts off by saying that like, Britain is the freest country in the world. We don't have a police state. We don't have, we have freedom of press and so on. And there's no censorship. And then he goes on to praise an injunction against a TV show documentary that investigates who the real Jesus was because it's heretical. So he's full of hypocrisies. And the purpose of the, the playwright is to almost become, along with his father, but the playwright, it's more, it's more, the father's more kind of a cerebral psychotherapist, you know, ad hoc therapist of Stephen. While the, uh, the, the playwright is delivering more of a shock doctrine. The combination of the two are allowing him to mine his own, the architecture of his own subconsciousness to discover who he actually really is. Yeah, there's various phrases that um, I think I'm probably pulling these uh, from the, the essay, the booklet, uh, which accompanies the DVD, has an essay in it. And it's speaking about England what it actually is and it, it actually for all this illusion of stability and illusion of safety and you, you see this coming through with, with Nigel Neal's Quatermass stuff a lot you know just a superficial everything's all right but beneath it so psychologically England is a battleground it's a constant turmoil a history of constant turmoil what the essayist calls lurking darknesses and you can say that those are yes within the land but also in his you could argue maybe in, in Stephen's mind, you know, in his psyche. And he also, they also fuse in the story the concept of England and Christianity being one, and also uh, the uh, the contradictions and uh, the good and bad things of that idea are interlinked in this kind of sort of like William Blakeian way. In fact, there's even one scene where they. They sing Jerusalem in the, in the when when he's leaving school, when he's when he's graduating from school, and I think I find that stuff. I find that kind of. I, I think ontology exists in really only two places in the world: England and New England in America, and 
Why I think that is, is because of this Presbyterianism, the Protestant almost Blakean concept of fusing the, the sense of self in these areas traditionally with that of this sign of this unique form of Christianity, you know, that came out of, that developed very differently in England and it was, then it was transformed to, to New England. But I think I can't think of anywhere else other than England and New England where you have this hauntological, you know, phenomena to that degree. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>